I invite you to turn to Psalm chapter 2. And we're going to be reading the text, first of all, as will be our custom with each of these. Occasionally you will hear a different word than perhaps is in your New King James or King James or whatever Bible you're carrying. Uh, When that happens, I am really drawing from the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament. And so uh, at least on one occasion that will happen in this text this morning. Some of you have asked, and rather than reading both texts as I did last week, that's the direction I'm going to be going and kind of melding them on occasions. Psalm chapter 2, God's word declares, Why do the nations rage? And the people plot a vain thing. The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us break their bonds in pieces and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall hold them in derision. Then he shall speak to them in his wrath and distress them in his deep displeasure. Yet I have set my king on my holy hill of Zion. I will declare the decree the Lord has said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will give you the nations for your inheritance and the ends of the earth for your possession. You shall shepherd them with a rod of iron. You shall dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore be wise, O kings." Be instructed, you judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way when his wrath is kindled but a little. Blessed are all those who put their trust in him. One of the purposes of me going through the book of Psalms in these days was the nature of their instruction for us and encouragement to us with regarding the relationship between the people of God, the enemies of God, and God himself. For this is the content of a majority of the Psalms. Some of these are going to be bothering us as we go around along. Some of the others will uh, be encouraging Uh, We are going to be encountering uh, in the weeks to come, more so this summer, psalms that are, we call them precatory psalms, which are psalms that call upon God's judgment upon our enemies. And that's something we don't have in our hymn book much, you know, it's not a real strong part of hymnody historically, except for those that are derived from Scripture. Um, But the foundation of those psalms are found here in Psalm chapter 2. Not only the imprecatory psalms, but psalms like that, that ask for deliverance from our enemies, which we're going to see right away next week in Psalm 3. And as Psalm 1 gave us a great introduction to what God wants for us, He wants us to be in a condition of being blessed and gave us that instruction on an individual level for the individual believer, for the one who wants to uh, walk with God, what is required of him, what is uh, both in the negative what to avoid and in the positive what to embrace. 
Uh, we found it laid out for us in Psalm 1 to really begin this journey into uh, a worship book that is driven by the events and the very strong uh, affections of the psalmist. We don't often think of that as being uh, the heart of God, but that's what it is, as God works through these psalmists. And they saw what all of us see, is that there's a great dichotomy in our society. There's really only two sides to every society, historically. Those that acknowledge and strive to know God and to please God, and those who are opposed to him, who follow after their own gods, of their own design and making. And the psalmist saw that very clear, and you might say, Pastor, that's really black and white. There seems like there's a lot of gray area. There really isn't. It's only gray to us who have been compromised by our engagement with the world and our affections toward the world, and we saw that last week. But in our observations, if we are careful, we will recognize that there is a great chasm that is not filled with gray, Rather, it's filled with only one solution, that is Jesus Christ. And so we come to Psalm 2 with an observation. It's formed in a question, and the question is coming from a people group who are no God, have a history with God as his people, are occasionally as a people wanting to serve God. From their perspective, looking out at the other nations and other people groups, ask the question, why are they so against God? As we talked last week, that the purpose of God, the desire of God, the heart of God is to bless his creatures. That is why he created everything as it is. That it was good. It was good for us. He made it perfect for us us to be there, not only to live here, but to thrive here and flourish here, to uh, rule here, to subdue this earth, but also to multiply and fill this earth. He made it for that purpose. He is good. He has demonstrated that goodness um, throughout history, but we recognize that every Good demonstrates or is really measured against evil. That there is that distinction. And that evil for the good must be judged for good to be preserved, for good to endure. Or else evil will simply overwhelm it. And so God, as the good God, requires him to judge. To judge evil and also to work among the righteous. And so the question is asked, why do they rage against a good God? Why do people plot against him? Why do people oppose him? And from an observational point of view, 
having asked the question in verse 1, he asks, or he states in verse 2 with his observations, that the kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and his anointed. That this is the common theme, and in fact, in the history of nations, this is really, uh, in the origin of nations, this is where it began. <coughs> that the purpose of nation building was to stand against God. It was to oppose him. We will rule ourselves rather than submit ourselves to your rule. When we look at the origin of nations and some of the earliest nations, we usually go back into Egypt uh, often, most often. Uh, the Bible takes us into Nimrod and that area following, and the, uh, following the um, Tower of Babel and the division of people by language. And we see the elevation of individuals in the leadership and then the subduing of language groups by those individuals for their own interests and sometimes for the interests of society. But overwhelmingly, we find again and again that it exalts man against God. This is why when God formed his own nation, he said, we're not going to do it that way. I will lead you every day. I will give you a law that is fair and just and the means to enforce that law and an expectation that if you keep that, you'll be blessed. If you violate that, you'll have consequences, which you've studied this morning a little bit in Sunday school for the adults. And so we come to this and we recognize that uh, God had a different strategy. And so the social needs of man could be for peace and safety could be established without governments, uh, but men rejected it. Even Israel, experiencing the goodness of God, rejected his kingship over them and cried out, says, oh, we want a king like the nations. But the nations are raging against God and his anointed. They are the very design for that purpose. And every time Israel says, we want to be like them, we want to be like them, we want to be like them, they are basically rejecting the goodness of God and they fall into the category of this observation that they set themselves against God, they set their counsel against the Lord uh, and is anointed. And the word anointed there is the word Messiah or Christ. And Christos is in the Greek. And so against the Lord, that's God, and is anointed the Christ, the Messiah. And when you see that word anointed in the Old Testament, that is the comparable term to Christ. So we have these two entities described that that's really who you're battling against. You are choosing to reject their headship over you to rage against them, to literally break their rule over you. The psalmist observes this. He says they rage against goodness. They really plot against something that is beneficial to them, something that is benevolent, someone who ha desires to bless them, and they rage against this. They plot against this. They take counsel against this. They set themselves against this 
and hears their word, let us break their bonds in pieces and cast away their cords from us. They are not trying to break the bond between the Lord and his anointed, for that is inseparable, that is indestructible, for it is within the oneness of the Godhead. So what bond is it that they want to break? They want to break the bond of God over his creatures. We want to break that bond. We want to cast off that acknowledgement that he is by his very name, the Lord, and that this one is the Messiah, our Messiah, our Deliverer, our Anointed, the Anointed One for our benefit, the Christ. We want to break off that relationship. We don't want to acknowledge it, and we are going to plot against it, and we're going to take action as an entity. This is not on an individual level. This is as a people group. Everything here is plural compared to the Psalm 1, which is your personal walk, this is now we as a people. How do we respond to God? Because you have responsibility before God, not only privately, but publicly. That's why we have this meeting every week. That's why we have a church membership. That's why we have this identified body set apart, that is the word sanctified, made holy, set apart, uh, from the world, that we try to guard it from intrusion of unbelievers and of those that want to oppose God, that this is our public identity as people of God. It is not limited to one church, but to churches of like faith and practice throughout the earth. But we need to have a public relationship with God as a people of God. I know that our world has wanted to isolate us and convince us that we can know everything we need to know because I can sit at home in my jammies on my bed with my computer on my lap and get any teaching I want, uh, and I don't really need to be among God's people. And again, that is a lie from the evil one because it rages against the very bond that Christ established when he says, I will build, I will establish my church. And we're saying we don't need that relationship. And so in many ways, those who want to privatize their worship are indeed raging against God's design. Because God's design is that we worship together. That it is a corporate act. That we gather as often as we will to partake of communion. That we gather to sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs to one another and before God that we gather to hear God's word and to be trained by it. Uh, why else would he give the church apostles, prophets, teachers, pastors? Why? Well, not to do it on an individual basis in the front of a talking image, but rather to have this rapport and the benefits that are there that we identify as his people. And so we see the society has raged against that. Nothing is different. We can see it in churches and their attitudes of Christians. Um, but as people groups, we need to identify that, uh, and the Bible, by the way, the Bible doesn't reference what color your skin is. It just doesn't care. 
Um, it's a non-starter in Scripture. Um, that is a f- bizarre, forced distinction that is erroneously called racism. Um, the Bible talks about tribe, tongue, people, nations. That's the subdivisions of men um, that the Bible uses. And it's built, we know, from Babel on language. And that language is the real foundation of the distinction between men. Uh, everything else just happens uh, be- due to the association and sometimes the climate and sometimes the extent of genetic mixture or lack thereof. And so we know that these, these are the divisions. Tribe, tongue, people, nation. Uh, tribal being your birth, who's your family. And then notice the second division is your tongue. What is the language that you speak? These are the divisions of men. And so in our context, we would talk about the English speaking the world. <coughs> but in the, in the church, it is interesting that the birth of the church, what was the one thing God wanted to overcome? He wanted to overcome your language barriers. To communicate something to us, not just to make sure everyone heard the gospel in their own tongue, but to communicate something that the, the church disregards the barrier of language. To identify itself as a people of God. But the nations are different. They will set up those barriers. They will multiply barriers um, because they are plotting. And we know what their plot is. Their plot is really not so much against you. It might appear that way, and certainly the psalmist is going to refer to it. It's really plotting against God. We're going to break off his authorities. The bands that it talks about is really not recognizing their authority. It is that idea that he has enslaved us, and it keeps a negative view of God. He has banded us, and we're going to cast away his cords from us. We're not going to be bound by the limitations he has put on us. And again, it's a sorrowful thing to see societies do this again and again and again and where it leads. And it always leads to dystopia. It always leads there. It always leads to misery. Because you are fighting against the, your designer your creator. You're fighting against good. People use the term, are you on the wrong side of history? All the nations are on the wrong side of history. Not by the judgment of other nations, not by the judgment of history books, but by the judgment of the one who created us. The right side of history is always going to be that we are going to stand on God's side. That we are going to not only invite these strong cores not to confine us but to keep us safe and at peace. That's really what God offers mankind. Right? What did Christ say? My burden is light. There's a burden but it's light. My yoke isn't heavy. Um, I'm not trying to be an ogre here. I have no I can as easily judge you, but I choose to save you. Um, it doesn't, it's not 
harder for me to do one than the other. If anything, saving you takes more. But it wouldn't be hard for me to just judge you and be justified in doing so. But in my love for you, I choose to offer you this yoke. And we talk about being bond slaves of Jesus Christ. And so we are inviting him to be Lord of our life. And that word Lord means master, that he is in charge. We are surrendering my will to his will. We are praying the prayer of may your will be done on earth right here in this vessel as it is in heaven among those vessels. We are inviting these bonds. And too many Christians see them as handcuffs and shackles. Instead of rules of engagement and rules that bring safety. Every one of you enjoy the great benefit of exterior bonds on your life. You enjoy them every time on your way here today, you enjoyed them. You enjoyed the fact that we have laws regarding how to operate a motorized vehicle. Do you enjoy those laws? They're for your safety. If nobody heeded any of them, and if there were no laws, what would it be like driving around Albuquerque? It's already dangerous with the laws. What would it be like without them? Well, we know the answer. We know what kind of chaos it would be that we'd have to build our vehicles less for how elegantly they look and more of what, how many hits they could endure. They'd look more like tanks, wouldn't they? So we recognize that bonds are not always for our injury, but for our benefit. And we can view them as restrictive if we want to. That's the attitude you want to take. Or we can see them as protective. And the world looks at what God offers us and says, that's too restrictive. I don't want to. I want to do whatever I want to do. I don't want to be restricted by this concept from a divine origin of right and wrong. I want to do according to my own heart and not that which pleases God. The nations are no different. And in essence, that is why they are established. Go with me to Genesis chapter 11 very quickly. I want to give you a few examples of this very dangerous thing, let us. Genesis 11, I've already referenced a little bit the Tower of Babel. Let's pick up in verse 3. It says, Then they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and bake them thoroughly. They had brick for stone and they had asphalt for mortar, and they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower whose top is in the heavens. Let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be scattered abroad over the face of the earth. But the Lord came down to see the city and the tower sons of men had built. Here, these let us words These are the words of nations and peoples and languages that are contrary to God. We are not going to say, let God, we're going to let us do what is pleasing to God. No, rather, 
this terminology is what we find in Psalm 2-3 has been there from the beginning of the nations. It is an arrogant statement saying that we will lift ourselves up if we unite together against God, we will lift ourselves up and can throw off his authority. We can throw him off. We can discard him. He is limiting us. He is the party pooper. Because we don't believe that God is good and wants to bless us. We don't believe Psalm 1, and therefore we heed the vile statements of nations and peoples who are plotting against God. I want to remind you who the other one who plots against God is, and that is Satan himself. And thus nations and peoples, kings of the earth, rulers are taking that side. They are joining the evil one and plotting against men. The evil one has a reason. His motivation is very clear. He hates men. It is a deep and abiding hatred of men because you have something he doesn't. You are bearers of God's image and he is not. You have self-possession. You have a freedom, a liberty that he was never granted. You were given authority that he was never permitted. And envy took hold of his heart. He says, I want to be like the Most High. And the one lie was that somehow he chooses to care for some of those creatures. No, he hates them all. But the nations and the peoples reject that concept and think that somehow because he is the prince of the power of the air, because this is his, his uh, domain today, that he is here as a roaring lion seeking to be made of hour, that it might appear that he has authority and he has their interests in mind because he invites them to rebellion, that somehow he is the one that's worthy of worship and service. And they do his bidding not realizing that his purpose is to destroy men. Not just to make them subject to him, his purpose is to destroy men. He doesn't want them you know, bringing sacrifices to him. <coughs> He'll accept that. But even when he does that, he doesn't bless them. He curses them, for he hates them. He wants them destroyed. The nations join that because all they see is his portrayal of God, just as Eve was enticed by the portrayal, God is withholding from you something good. You'll be more like God at the end of the day, knowing good and evil. He portrays himself to the nations, and the nations and the peoples, the rulers, the kings, they are enticed by that same offer, not recognizing the motive behind it is the destruction of humanity, and they try to break the benevolent bonds of God in their life. In Luke chapter 20, we have it in the New Testament described by Christ. I invite you to turn there. One other example. 
This is again a par- in the parabolic teaching of Christ. We can go to Luke 18, I'm um, sorry, 19, you know, we have multiple places we can find this kind of thing. Verse 9, it says, he began to tell the people this parable, a certain man planted a vineyard, leased it to vine dressers, went into a far country for a long time. Now at vintage time he sent a servant to the vine dressers that they might give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the vine dressers beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Again he sent another servant and they beat him also, treated him shamefully and sent him away empty-handed. Again he sent a third and they wounded him also and cast him out. Then the owner of the vine vineyard said, what shall I do? I will send my beloved son. Probably they will respect him when they see him. But when the vine dressers saw him, they reasoned among themselves. That's taking counsel together against him. This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, that the inheritance may be ours. So they cast him out of the vineyard and killed him. Therefore, what will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and destroy those vine dressers and give the vineyard to others. And when they heard it, they said, Certainly not. <laughs> People didn't like that message. You see, if you try to break the relationship between the Creator and, their cre- and the creatures, breaking off those bonds. We don't want to be subject to Him. We don't want to have these limitations in our life. You're trying to break away from the owner, your owner, and from His Son, the Messiah, the Deliverer, the Christ, the Anointed One. You cannot reject one without the other, and if you reject one, you automatically reject the other. But notice that they're saying, let us do this, let us do this. If we kill the son, we can get rid of the owner as well. We want to inherit what isn't ours. And this is the lives, the evil one, that somehow there's something better for you that God is withholding from you that you have right to We find the people saying certainly not to this parable because they understood what it meant. It meant that if Israel wants to murder the Messiah that God sent to her, God will reject her and offer the vineyard to others. And by the way, you're the others. You're Gentiles. And they didn't want that to happen, but they didn't want to subject themselves So we come to verse 4 and following, we see a divine response to the observation. He who sits in the heavens shall laugh, he will hold them in derision as he mocks them. And similarly, we see in Luke 19, 11, in that parable, as well as in Luke parable 20, that there is a, a necessity of judgment, that there is no mercy there anymore, for the merciful actions have already occurred and in the Luke 19, this is the parable of the talents, where he goes away, gives, distributes them, but it says that the people of the country didn't like him. They didn't want to serve him. So whatever resources he gave to them, most of them, there was only four trusted, and only three of the four served him with, with these. And, no, three. One that had ten, doubled it. One had five, doubled it. So two out of three, and one-third of those who he entrusted did nothing with it. And he took it from him and gave it to the one who had ten. And 
Somebody already has ten. Oh, well, what you have will be taken away and given to another. Because you didn't serve the Lord with what he had. And this idea that God will laughs at them is not that God doesn't take this seriously. It's that God recognizes this is foolishness. His response in Genesis 11 to the Tower of Babel, look what these people are doing. I give them some privacy. There's no evidence that he was trying to separate them and scatter them. He gave them a a command to be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. Um, They didn't want to keep his command. They didn't want to spread out. They didn't want to fill the earth. They wanted to stay together, unite against God. God's conclusion is, I can put an end to that really fast. And that's really what's entailed here, the idea of God laughing at them, because there's just an absolute foolishness. It's like the very young child trying to beat up his father in a rage. Swing all you want. Land as many strokes as you want, because all I have to do is swing once, and you'll be across the room unconscious. And so I laugh at your rage. I laugh at your tantrum, throwing yourself against the one who's providing everything, including gave you life, and has provided for your life to be sustained, and you're enraged in a tantrum against your own father. And the father endures it. He just sits there because it's not doing him any injury for you to rage against him. Throw your fists as hard as you want. And, but all it takes is one time, and boy, that kid knows. Oh, that's who's in charge. And we do that frequently as they're young, so they understand that they learn respect because there's going to come a time when they can take out dad. But hopefully they have matured enough to recognize what respect entails, of what it means to give someone life and to sustain that life with all of my work, energy, and resources to provide for them all those years of, of clothing and food and housing and warmth and all those things. The nations are like that spoiled child throwing a tantrum against God and God just laughs because they're doing can't do him any injury. The only one who's being injured when we want to cast off God is us. (laughs) It's, It's silly. So when the nations want to rage against God, they're not doing any injury to God, they're doing injury to themselves. And all you're trying to do is get God angry. If you keep on hitting and hitting and hitting and hitting and hitting, you'll come into his anger. And all he has to do is speak a word, it says in verse 5. One word, he shall speak to them in his wrath, distress them in his deep displeasure. One word, and they're gone. Just like the father, all he has to do is say, I've tolerated enough of this nonsense of your tantrum and just pick up that child and put him against the wall and let him know, no more. All you have to do is cross that threshold to rage. You rage against me, now here's my wrath. The difference between rage and wrath, one's a tantrum against a good God, one is a judgment of reaction. It is a judgment of your foolishness. 
God's wrath is not emotive in the sense of that uh, it's described that way frequently in God's word. We're going to fill up his wrath. There's just a point where he says, that's enough. The question that we ask is, is it enough? I've been asking God that pretty much every day for years. Is this enough, Lord? Look what they're doing to your creation. Look what they're doing to your creatures. Look what they're doing. In Scripture, we are called upon in our prayer life, and we don't teach this very much. Um, we, we pray for other things. But one of the things that we are, should be praying for is for God to come and look. And in my study, I've gone through Scripture and I've seen where in Tower of Babel is one example, um, and even prior to that, in the Cain and Abel incident, even in the garden, where God comes on and our responsibility is to pray. Well, how, why did God come down? He came down because he heard a cry. What cry are we talking about? Sometimes it's the soil crying out over the blood of Abel. The dirt knows enough to cry out to God when evil's been perpetrated upon it. When we see the evil of the nations being perpetrated against God's creation, his created order, and his creatures, and his people, we need to cry out. And we're going to see that throughout the Psalms where David leads us to crying out to God against these, saying, is this enough? Have they crossed that threshold into your wrath that you say, that's enough? And boom, there goes the kid sliding across the floor. But we invite God. When Israel was in captivity, why did God send Moses? I have heard their cry. Well, they weren't crying for bigger houses and a boat for the Nile. They weren't crying for that. They were crying for deliverance. They are saying, look what they're doing. They've enslaved your people. Deliver us. When Christ shows up at Sodom and, and, well, I've heard a cry and I'm going to see if it's true. Who's crying out against Sodom? All of their victims? Mostly, I believe, children. Giving the pattern of people in that debauched state of heart and mind and life. Certainly, I hope Lot, the Bible says it vexed his soul every day. Is our soul vexed enough every day to cry out to God and say, look what they're doing, inviting God to consider what the nations are doing against his creation, against his creatures, his people. But we don't pray those kinds of prayers because we don't study those kinds of psalms. God's ultimate response will be to establish Jesus Christ on his holy hill of Zion. And the psalmist here takes us directly to the millennial kingdom. He really doesn't establish him in terms of his sacrifice. That's really not in view here yet. We're going to have some other messianic psalms we're going to focus on Christ's sacrifice for the nations. But the first thing we understand is that the Messiah, the anointed one, the Christ, is also the King of kings and Lord of lords, and that there is a throne waiting for him, and there is a rulership that he has waiting for him. And that's what the psalmist wants to point to. When we cry out to God to come and look, please stop this. 
Put an end to what they are doing to your creation and to your creatures, to your people. When we cry out to God, we are inviting Jesus Christ to come in the clouds, and I believe it is, it is on our shoulders to do that. That God waits for that cry. That the people cannot endure anymore. We will endure. We will strive to endure. We have taught us to endure. You have warned us of this thing. But at some point there comes a breaking point of your people and we need to cry out to God. And, and the problem, the reason why we aren't praying that prayer is because we haven't come to that breaking point yet or we don't think we have. Because largely we're ignorant of just how bad it is around us. I don't know how much more like Sodom New Mexico has to get before we cry out to God to put an end to it. God says, I'm going to send my son. He's going to sit on the holy hill. He's going to be the only begotten, it says in verse 7. That is one reference to his humanity. What is his inheritance? All the nations, they will bow the knee. The entire earth, all the peoples, tongues, tribes will come. And in verse 9, and in that setting, it says, you shall, in your King, New King James, says, break them with a rod of iron. And that word uh, in the Greek, is, is, which means is probably the Masoretics didn't want it to be like this, that Jesus will shepherd them, he will rule them in a provisionary way with a rod of iron. That is, he will still be a benevolent God caring for them, but he will have absolute demand of their worship. And that's what we see in the millennial kingdom. The psalmist takes us immediately to the millennial kingdom. And when we cry out to God today, there is no intermediate judgment that I find left in the scriptures. There's just the final one where Christ comes in the battle of Armageddon and on that white horse and he says, that's the end. And he puts to its conclusion and he establishes himself in Jerusalem and he rules them with a rod of iron but not just breaking them this, is, this seems like a very violent thing but rather that he is shepherding them that is he is caring for them even while he makes his demands of them which is exactly what they don't want everybody wants the blessing of God without the demands every child wants that right they want you to feed, house, clothe and care for them without making them do any chores. Right? Is that true? Yeah, because they don't appreciate what you're doing for them. They complain about the little you ask of them. A thankful child who understands the sacrifice of what it takes to be a parent will never balk at doing the chores. They will never complain about it. They will never argue it. They will never not do it. They will recognize, I have a huge debt to my parents. How could I possibly make up that debt? Same thing between you and God. When Jesus comes and on the holy hill and he sets up, do you know what the millennial kingdom is like? That's what we often think of where the lion lays down with the lamb, where there's a perfect environment, there's no hunger, where there's... there's uh, no war. No, it's, people live really long times, like hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. It says that you'll be thought a child if you die at the age of 100. See, we got baby Elizabeth still here. Not 100 yet. Just a child. 
in the millennial kingdom. Is that a wonderful provision? Is that a wonderful time? Yes. Are there some demands upon that? Yes. And God's going to implement those with a rod of iron. That means forced. And yes, loving, providing parents have to force children to do chores. It's sad. Tells you the condition of their heart. Reminds you they're little sinners, not little angels. Little fallen angels, maybe, but little sinners. Um, And that's the condition of the millennial kingdom. And that's what's described here. And he'll destroy. He'll dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. They'll just shatter their rebellion in that time period. And does it mean that their hearts are changed? No. Because we know at the end of that thousand-year reign, Satan is released. And men unite together again in geopolitical units and make war against Jesus. That's the battle of Gog Magog at the end of the thousand-year reign. And so, this is what we're asking for. This is what we invite God to do. Look at what they're doing as we see the arrogance and the destruction the violence that they're doing against God's created order from the genetic level, the micro level, to the macro levels. Things that are occurring all throughout the earth. A little bit of his wrath is all it takes. It says in verse 12, when his wrath is kindled a little, people will start perishing. Judgment will come. And so the end of the psalm comes with this, with this geopolitical advice. You're throwing a tantrum against your creator. And it's just a matter of crossing the line when he is done tolerating that. For you to get the backhand of God as a people, as a nation. Not just one nation, but all the nations. So here's the advice in verse 10. Now therefore be wise, O kings. Be instructed, you judges of the earth. And here's the advice. Here's wisdom. Here's instruction. What should the nations do? Well, the nations should serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling and kiss the Son lest he be angry. That's the response, is submission. And we have several examples of that in the Bible. I don't have time to get into them. Um, In Daniel chapter 4, we have a wonderful chapter written by a non-Israelite. King Nebuchadnezzar wrote that chapter. It is about his uh, humiliation and about the fear of the Lord coming into his life that he realizes that there is only one God and it's not him. He has to go and eat grass for a number of years to figure that out, Um, but he gained wisdom and declared at the end of that that there is no God but the God of Daniel. And I'm going to surrender to him. And he surrenders to such a degree that wise 
finally wise king, and he becomes one of the authors of Scripture. Penning that chapter. You see, we have those examples. We also have examples of those who ignore this advice. Herod was one of those. In Acts chapter 12, he was breathing out threatenings. He had killed James among the 12 apostles. Imprisoned Peter. Peter escaped, but he wanted to take out more of God's people. He accepted the praise and even the worship of those that he had authority over. And because he did not give the God the glory, after a very fine speech, um, he was consumed by worms in the presence of that very crowd. Wouldn't have that been a sight to see. He crossed the line. All you need is for God to get a little angry. A little bit of his wrath, and boom, you're done. The imprecatory psalms and psalms like them, even into the next, where it says, God, consider my enemies. Look at my enemies. We're going to see that next week. This is the, this is the standard. This is the basis for all of those psalms, is to realize, Lord, they are not just fighting against your creation. They're not just fighting against your creatures and, and your people. They're really fighting against you. And if they don't take this advice and humble themselves, and by the way, serving the Lord with fear, we don't think of that. We think we should serve the Lord with gladness, which is you can't have gladness and fear, but when it's, you're fearing a benevolent one, oh, yes, you can. Should children be a little fearful of their fathers. Oh, yes. Does that mean that they can't serve him with gladness? Oh, no, these are not exclusive terms. In fact, they are very complementary. They go together perfectly. And so we should serve the Lord with a sense of duty that he is the Lord, but also with rejoicing, and even the joy, it says, with trembling. That I'm going to rejoice with trembling, that, that these are not opposites. I can either have joy, I can even, or I can have this respect, awe, and fear the Lord. No, they are combined. And again, we see that best portrayed in the role of uh, a son and a father. The immature child will throw the tantrum at the father. The father will be patient until he crosses that threshold and it's time to be done. And then the child learns how powerful the father is, but it is the father's patience that betrays his love, but it's the father's wrath that demonstrates his righteousness. And both are looking out for the future of this child. For a child left to have tantrums uncontrolled is not going to have a good future. And so the idea of, you know, submit yourself, kiss the sun, subordinate yourself. And, and this isn't, uh, we have associated kisses with romance. Um, this is a subjective thing. Uh, in the olden days, what would you do when you approached 
the throne of the king. And he extended his hand. What were you to do? Kiss his ring. It is a submission to authority. It's a recognition of authority. Kiss the son lest he be angry. Recognize God's authority in that this is what we need to have nations do. But we don't find that to be the case today. We find the nations continuing to rage. Their tantrum is, is escalating, not dissipating. Isn't it? They're raging against their creator. They don't want anything. They don't want God to have any authority over them. And this isn't something that's just recent. You've heard me teach this plenty of times. The whole Constitution of the United States declares that. We're going to choose our rulers, not God. We're going to do that. The whole democratic process stinks of rebellion. Not against people, but against God. That God says, I reserve this to myself. We say, no, we'll take that. Let us, let us, let us. Because we all know the majority are always right and wise. Right? Not so much. And so we either serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. This is what we need to pray for our leadership in our lives, whether it be in our home, in our church, in our society, in nations, our workplaces, this is the solution, is to subordinate us ourselves as a people group to Christ. We don't have a lot of control over the leadership of nations, but we have a lot of control over this group, this unit, this society. Are we going to serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling and kiss the sun? Are we going to... Bend the knee to Christ, gladly serving him, recognizing that we owe him everything. That we not only do that individually, but as a body. For this is what defines the church, is that we are the Lord's. They will serve him. They will not, if, if push comes to shove, we'll do like Daniel and his friends and stand when they say to kneel. And we'll kneel when they say not to kneel. Right? The first got you thrown in a fiery furnace. The second one got you thrown into a lion's den. Because we recognize the Lord is above all. Which brings us to the very last phrase, and it's a precious one. Do you remember how chapter 1, verse 1 began? Blessed is the man. That phrase. I want you to see how chapter 2 ends. Blessed are all those who put their trust in him. God wants to individually bless you. He gives you some instruction in chapter 1 of how to make that happen. But he also wants to corporately bless us. And we don't think of his blessing always in those terms. That I have, we privatize our walk with God to such a degree that we forget that I have a place in a society that God also wants to bless. And so it says, blessed are all those, that's a very plural term, who, and that's also plural, put their, plural, trust in him. That we share God's blessing, so there is a private level of expectation, and then there is a public or corporate body-wise 
level of expectation of trusting the Lord. Then we're going to trust the Lord as a body, as a, as a one of those divisions of people. We want to be of that, that this society uh, trusts in the Lord and that he wants to bless us. Does he want to bless nations? Yes. Does he want to bless tribes? Yes. Does he want to bless languages? Yes. He wants to bless them all. And he waits for them to serve him with fear, rejoice before him with, with uh, trembling, and to kiss the son. The son is the Messiah. He wants them to submit. If they would submit, he would want to bless them. If they would just trust in him. And, and again, we have very little control over the nations, but we have control over this smaller segment of society called a church. We have individual responsibilities, but as a body we need to recognize that God wants to bless us as a people, not just as individuals. And that means you should be striving to be a blessing among the body, within the body. This is where your service and your ministry responsibilities come into play, not just your attendance. Your attendance is, is bare minimum, Right? That's just the minimum. And that shouldn't even be challenged in your mind, in your heart, in your life from a week-to-week basis. Um, Rather, um, that's the minimum. And now I'm going to serve the Lord with fear. I want to rejoice coming to his presence with thanksgiving, with trembling. I want to kiss the Son, Son of God, who took away my sins knowing that he wants to bless me if I'll just trust in him. And he wants to bless us if we will trust in him together. Let's pray. (coughs) Lord God, we do thank you again for your word. We thank you for its power, its observation, its advice, and its promise. And Lord, while we must each receive you as Savior and Lord on an individual basis. <coughs> we also know that we have a responsibility one to another to grow together in our knowledge of you and our faith in you and our service to you. Lord, we want to be a body of people, a, a, a body of saints that not only invite, but enjoy and relish your bonds, knowing that they are loving, that they are light, the duties you ask of us, that we might fulfill them together to your praise, glory, and honor. Lord, we know this is your church. We want to serve you according to your word and not according to our ideas. And we pray again for wisdom that is from above to guide us, to do so in a manner that brings pleasure to you and does not cross that or invite that wrath in any way. Lord, we do pray this morning 
for our nation and the nations of this earth today. This passage describing them perhaps has never been more true than in these days. Lord, we invite you to come to consider the evil that is being perpetrated against your people, your creation, and your creatures. pray for your coming to judge. Too often we only pray for us to be delivered, but Lord, we know that that ultimately requires your judgment, and we pray again as we look at the evil around us. There's just so little we can do. And so we place ourselves in your hand. We pray that you might deliver your people soon. That when you come, you might find faith on the earth among us. And that we might trust in you, Lord. That until that day, that we might serve you faithfully. As individuals, as families, as a church family. In Christ Jesus' name, amen.